Named Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show today, we have Chris. Yo. And Darren. Hi. Uh, today on the show, we're going to be talking about Volcano Choir's new album, Repave, getting into a little bit of things you can look forward to from the music section this week at Review Be Named. Um, we're going to be talking about the Futurama series finale, and we're going to be doing our standard news roundup. So stick with us throughout the hour. Uh, I think it's going to be a good one. Why don't we start things off quickly here and kick things over to you, Chris, for our first news story. Okay, so uh, the, what I wanted to talk about this week was uh, an announcement that was made a couple of days ago that uh, one of the many guest stars we can look forward to on the new season of Community is going to be none other than Walter Goggins of Justified fame. Um, Walter this is really, Goggins? Yeah, Walton Goggins. <laughs> <laughs> we are um, just a minute into the podcast and we're already making prodigious errors. Get ready for that, listeners. Yep, that's what we do here. Uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Walton Goggins is going to be guest starring on uh, an episode of Community. Um, from the like, from the description that they listed, it sounds like he's going to be the new agent of City College. Um, I, I'm very excited about this. I love uh, Justified. I Goggins probably one of my favorite parts of that show. So seeing him come over to community is just that long running tradition they have of getting absolutely phenomenal guest stars. So uh, very excited for that episode and a much needed piece of good news, uh, given all the ups and downs we've had about the coming new season of community, especially the idea that Donald Glover would be scaling back his role in the show. So um we're finally on an upswing with community again, and I'm I'm excited for the great guest stars we have lined up for this season. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. Um, as we've talked about previously in the podcast, Jonathan Banks is going to be basically a regular. He's guest starring in what is it, eleven episodes I think of the thirteen episode season. Yeah. Um, so he's going to be around a lot, uh, and it looks like Greendale will be full of you know supporting player slash antagonists from shows we love this season. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I have still a lot of questions going into this season about how um, everything is going to work with major changes to the forecast. But the strength of the guest stars that we have to expect from this season really is starting to reassure me again. And especially since Dan Harmon is back behind the wheel, you know that there are going to be guest stars that are used well rather than um, what we had in season four. Where it was kind of just like, here's this person that you love they're in community and like I'm, I'm speaking very specifically about trisha helper right there so. <laughs> i think that i think that was true of a lot of guest stars though i mean you had yeah. jason alexander who popped up basically to be jason alexander for a few minutes in the puppet episode yeah uh, i think i think like most things about season four of community there was a lack of direction and purpo or purposefulness to the guest stars that hopefully will be rectified with Harmon back in control absolutely and uh i i think uh, Goggins as the new face of, well, I, I don't think it's been, um, confirmed that he's from city college, but that's just the, that's it, the it just seems like who, like that's, uh, a role that he would fit into nicely. Um, I don't know about you. And I think we can talk about this for a minute. I feel like the city college being the antagonist of Greendale thing was always better when it was more of a like one-off joke about how like they were absurd rivals and city college was better and has been worse. So long as city college has been seeming to actively plot to overthrow Greendale in the last few seasons. Like that didn't work for me in the latter half of Harmon's uh, uh, final season slash, you know, the third season of the show, since it is no longer his final season. Um, it didn't work for me during season four when it felt completely dropped in and didn't really make any sense. 
what are your thoughts on this? Do you think do you think it did I, it did work for you in season three better than it worked for me, right? Yeah, it worked for me a lot better. Like I, I don't mind so much City College being this actual antagonist that is trying to undermine uh, the school. For me, the problems with season three came more from um, the the stuff that was happening internally at Greendale, specifically some of the things Chang was doing and some elements of that, which I thought were either missed opportunities or just went a little bit off the rail in terms of ridiculousness. Um, I think you and I always like the thing that you always say, and I agree with this very much so, is that why wasn't um, uh, Senor Chang in jail after yeah. his revolution? <laughs> like, that's like, like, like you could you could do that plot line, but after that, he has to be off the show and he has to be in prison. Right. I'm fine with that. But like that has to be his end. And that actually probably would have worked better um, because I think even with Harmon in charge of season four, I'm not really sure where you can go with Chang after he, what he did there. Yeah. Well, and then like what season four did with him getting Chang Nisha. Yeah. It's like just a stupid idea that was never funny enough to justify its existence. Like if Chang Nisha had been really funny, I would have forgiven how dumb it was, but sure. it wasn't, it was just, it was just stupid. And I really like Kim Jong as an actor. Like, I think he's a really funny guy. I just think this show never really knew what to do with him. Um, and it's gotten worse and worse at figuring out how to deal with him. Yeah, and, and especially when you have so, like like he he's such a talented actor. I can understand the inclination to wind to hold on to them for as long as you can. But when you have such a wealth of guest stars and supporting players, um, keeping him in the forefront when his arcs are becoming like increasingly more directionless, just it, it's not doing the show a service. It's not doing him a service. I, I think you could easily scale him back to more of a bit player and elevate some of the other people, especially when you have Walton Goggins and Jonathan Banks coming in this season. Like I, I want to see them getting more screen time, even though the Goggins is only in for one episode. Like I, I think you have uh, time and episodes that could be more well devoted to some other great new faces coming through the show. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, to me, I think the, the height of the Chang arc and what I really I hoped they were going to do with him was back in season two when he was always fighting to get an end to the group. And yeah. I felt like there was a good arc there and Chang desperately wanted to be in the group and eventually getting into the group and just becoming another difficult to deal with member of the family. Um, like, I think I think you could use you could use Chang the way that Pierce was being used at the time, especially now that you don't have Chevy Chase anymore. You could use Chang as, a, as the sort of member of the group that is an antagonist a lot of the time and isn't everyone's favorite, but is still slowly accepted into a part of the family. And I think that that would work as for the character and it would work for communities, you know, ongoing themes and story arcs. So that's what also, I hope Harmon gets back to. Yeah. And also the fact that the cast is now two members lighter. Right. So, so bring Chang in. I mean, you're going to have Ken Jeong around. So I say just bring him into the group and use him more like a human being and less like a cartoon character. Um, Cause some of the cartoonish elements of community work for me. Chang rarely does. Um, and I also yeah. think Ken Jeong is usually funnier, the less cartoony he is. See, for example, him in the hangover movies, which is just way too over the top for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that completely. Um, uh, but that's really neither here nor there to our excitement about Walton Goggins. Um, as you said, I love him unjustified. I think he's giving one of the best performances on TV that uh, is not getting nearly enough recognition. Um, and I also think he's proven unjustified that he can be really, really funny when the situation uh, requires it. So I think oh, yeah. this is going to be great. See, that that's another thing I love about Community is that they recognize that they recognize all the things that people love. And, and that, that show's always been good about really picking great guest stars. 
um, especially guest stars who maybe might be ignored a little bit elsewhere. Um, I think community has always done a great job of bringing in fun people for an episode or two. And this is just continuing that tradition. And I'm very happy to see that. Yeah, I agree. Um, Darren, are you a community guy? Uh, not really. So you have no strong opinions either way on Goggins? I don't know who that is. <laughs> One of these Fair days enough. we're going to sit you down in front of a television, clockwork orange style, and you'll watch Community and Justified on two side-by-side -side TVs at the same time. Okay. <laughs> I don't want Justified either. Yeah, exactly. So we'll, we'll catch you up on both of them at the same time, and then you'll know who Walton Goggins is, and you'll probably have some transposed plot lines between the two shows, which I think will be really entertaining to watch you try to figure out. <laughs> I'll try. I'm on the like, show. That so. arc where Chang took over the, the uh, high school in Harlan really didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> um. All right. With that, why don't we why don't we go ahead and move on? We are excited about Goggins, and obviously, as always, we will continue to talk about Community, especially once the show returns. At question mark, uh, either when whatever the show whose existence I keep forgetting, even though we have literally looked it up on this podcast before to figure out what the fourth show on Thursdays on NBC this fall is. Uh, it's something with the family, right? It's like Welcome to the Family. That's what it is. Okay, I remembered. When that show is it, is it just like scenes of Modern Family kind of recut? <laughs> That would be the greatest the show. <laughs> NBC just re-edited Modern Family scenes. That, like, that was they aired after uh, um, Park <laughs> Um So my like of the of the three new shows that are following Parks and Rec in the lineup, I would say Welcome to the Family is the most likely to get canceled because the other two are anchored by big stars who have previously been successful uh, leads in television shows. So I assume like those two are more likely to last. Um, if Welcome to the Family gets canceled early, which I don't even I don't even know what the show's really about. I think it's like I don't even know. Again, we looked that up on the podcast before, but I don't care enough to pay attention. When that show gets canceled, we may see community back soon. Otherwise, I'm sure we'll see it in midseason once that show is eventually canceled or once other shows are canceled and a hole in the schedule pops up. Uh, for now, we, we should turn to our next news story, which is that uh, Hayao Miyazaki is retiring from filmmaking. Uh, he announced this week that his current film, The Wind Rises, will be his last. Uh, Miyazaki has been making movies in Japan for over 30 years now. He's the head of Studio Ghibli, and he's, he's made uh, many of my favorite animated movies of the last several decades. Um, he's getting up there in age, and apparently he says his process used to take him four or five months to make a movie, and now uh, The Wind Rises took him around five years to make. So he just thinks he can't keep up the pace anymore. Um, I'm sad to hear this, but I understand it, and supposedly The Wind Rises is very good. I have not seen the film yet. It's making the festival circuit right now, but I look forward to it, um, and I wanted to take a minute to talk about Miyazaki, what you guys, if you like Miyazaki, what you think of him, et cetera, et cetera, and give him sort of a review-be-named podcast send-off if this is in fact going to be his last film which he said he's going to retire before but he seems very serious this time um chris thoughts on this um i regret to say that miyazaki is actually one of my shocking gaps in my pop culture um i, I have not gotten to his films quite on my list yet it's like you and the alien movies it's one of those things that i should have done years ago but for whatever but I did the alien shocking reasons i haven't gotten to it yet um yeah, it's kind of bittersweet to me because it's one of those things. It's just like based on the num the people I know who love his films, um, and how much I value their opinions. 
Um, it's one of those things that just like I know I'm gonna love them when I see them, and like knowing that the end is already there before I kind of like immerse myself in his work is that it, it's it's kind of sad. It's like it's it's sad for me, even though I'm not very familiar yet. But yeah, that's all I have to say. Fair enough. Um, Darren, are you a big Miyazaki guy? Uh, like Chris, I have regrettably not seen any of his movies. I've heard all about them, but it's just one of those things where, oh yeah, I'll, I'll watch it eventually. Well, I'm going to use this opportunity then to pitch both of you on doing the thing that you already know you should do and checking out Miyazaki movies. Um, I mean, Spirited Away is my personal favorite, so I would say you should probably start there. Uh, but really, with few exceptions, he doesn't make bad movies, and even his bad movies are filled with like such a sense of joy and such an in- inventiveness that they're fun to watch, even if they're not great. Um, part of his retirement message, which really stuck with me, uh, I read read a transcript of his message. Uh, I obviously did not watch it because I don't speak Japanese, um, and so that would have been a waste of my time. But uh, one of the things he said that I loved was that, quote, I wanted to convey the message to children that this life is worth living, and that message has not changed. Um, I think that's, A, just a beautiful thing to say, and B, really true of, of the ethos behind his movies. Uh, he makes he makes movies for kids that are kind of about like all of the things that are beautiful in life. Um, and they're beautiful movies, they're really imaginative, they're really inventive. Um, you guys should go check them out. Yes, and I should. for those of you listeners who haven't seen a lot of Miyazaki, now is a great time to go watch a lot of Miyazaki so that you can join me in sadness that he will be retiring. Um, though I assume he will continue to work in some way, so we may see more from Miyazaki at some point, even if not as a director. Um, but I just wanted to take this uh, moment in this segment to give him a hats off for me to be named. Uh, I'm a big fan of his work. I think he's a great director, and I think he's an important director. And... Uh, I'm sad to see him go, even even if we do see more from him in the future. Um, with that, Chris, I'm going to kick back to you for our final news story for the week. Okay. Um, this was a story that I was only kind of paying the barest amount of attention to that when I you, you mentioned it to me this morning, I kind of came back around to and saw how it had blown up and was very surprised <laughs> over the turn that this thing took. So basically what happened is um, – J.H. Williams III and W.H. Blackman, who were co-writing the title for DC Batwoman, recently announced that they were going to be off the book in December because of uh, – surprise, surprise for anyone who follows DC Comics these days – last-minute editorial changes. Um, <laughs> that's that's not news. I mean it's like like it was – this was something for me that was super frustrating last year and like Jordan can attest. Like there were there would be times that like I was pulling my hair out over this because it just it was just driving me crazy and I couldn't understand what was going on over there. But like now it's just it's just the norm. Like that's what happens. It's like it's it's everything I hear DC Comics is not a very happy working environment right now, especially if you are not within the small core of like four or five writers that they seem to really favor. So that announcement was made, um, and several of the reasons they, – they gave a couple specific examples of things that were changed at the last minute. They had a new origin story for Killer Croc they wanted to do that DC nixed, and they had to really suddenly turn around and change. Um, and then they had uh, this plan to uh, marry – like the, the lead character, Batwoman – 
um, is a lesbian. And they had this plan where she has a fiance right now and they were planning a wedding between her and her fiance at some point. And I guess this was one of the changes that DC um, said that they they wouldn't they weren't going to allow. And I, I think where this happened in the process kind of got murky because the story quickly became DC is against gay marriage. And I don't believe that for a second. I really don't. DC is not against gay marriage. DC is just against marriage. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. They are like, it, like the, some of the first changes that were made with the reboot was Superman's no longer married. Barry Allen's no longer married. Um, uh, Aquaman is no longer married. They 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 erased pretty much Aquaman's all of the married. married. No, Aquaman's not married. That was an announcement that was clarified this past weekend. Aquaman is not married. But I thought he's referred to Mira as his wife. Yeah, no, apparently Jeff John like somebody went through and like reread all the issues. Jeff Johns was very careful about dancing around that. Wow. Yeah. Well, I guess that's good since uh, in the pages of Aquaman, we've recently learned that Mira is married to someone else. Yeah. Well, you know, and undersea <laughs> but that's really neither here nor there for the story at hand. Um, so I, I don't believe that this is at all a bigoted move on DC's part. I just think that this is more of the same of the editorial. Oh, let's be kind and call it a kerfuffle that's going along around <laughs> like going on behind the scenes over there. It's, um, I, I think it's just more of that. And again, just, you know, I, I get where they're coming from with the marriage thing, because it's like marrying Peter Parker to Mary Jane was a albatross for Marvel that they had to deal with for years and years and years until finally Joe Quesada took the hit of the one of the worst Spider-Man stories of all time. But in the long run was probably good for the longevity of the characters. It's like you have to be. I think you have to kind of pick and choose what characters that you want to uh, marry off because like in this medium where you have to keep these stories going on and on and on and on, taking out the possibility for romantic subplots really undercuts like the long-term dramatic tension you might have to a character. And with a character like Batwoman, who's arguably one of the more successful new creations you've seen DC come up with in the past decade or so, I can understand them wanting to maybe not make too many dramatic status quo shifts or do anything that might undercut any possibilities for dramatic tension from the character and the book. So I understand them not wanting to marry a character. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that she's gay. I think it's just bad editorial uh, timing. I, I think that they should have, if this was truly their edict, it should have been there from the get-go, which I've heard some reports that it may have been there from the get-go. But Blackman and Williams leaving the book is, I think, just more of the same of what we've come to expect from DC in these recent years. And I've been talking for forever. So, Jordan, what do you, do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> uh, well, I want to disagree with the idea that um, marriage is taking something necessarily off the table in a comic book. I understand exactly what you're saying in terms of comics go on and on. But the my, my first thought, as soon as you said that, was, wait, but, like, most marriages go on and on, right? Like, your standard marriage lasts years decades a lifetime sometimes um and i think there are there's plenty of drama to exploit in that i think it's more difficult drama to exploit and more difficult romantic subplots to deal with than uh you know peter parker as as a young single guy in new york city for example um but i do think there are narrative possibilities there that comics are doing a lot to ignore for the most part or at least mainstream comics um and i would like to see 
one of the, one mainstream superhero book at least be dealing with these things. I think you can tell interesting stories about a marriage and interesting stories about characters who are married um, that don't have to kill the romance of the book and don't have to kill subplots uh, for the book. And I don't read Batwoman, um, but from what I hear, both characters in that relationship are very well realized um, and could probably withstand marriage taking, you know, the other romantic lead options off the table for a while. Um, and also, divorce happens all the time. So if the marriage <laughs> isn't working out, you can always write a character out of the marriage. So I would say I am in favor of superhero comics growing up a little bit and allowing for the occasional marriage. I can see why, especially in a medium that is still mostly aimed at, at younger readers, I can see why you don't want every character to be married off because, you know, the kids need the kids need their romantic leads to change every once in a while, I guess. Well, I, I don't think it's so much more that. Is it like, it, think of your favorite sitcoms and when they take the will, they won't they off the table. Like but a little bit of the fun is lost there. And yeah. I, I agree with you that like there should, there can be marriages in comics and you can, that is a whole area that can be explored. And maybe Batwoman would have been a great, um, like, like that would have been a, like a great choice for that because, you know, it's like you can't marry Batman. You can't marry off um spider-man again because they'll never do that now um but batwoman as a character with a lesser profile yeah is probably a character that you could um you could allow to get married i could but, see batwoman being a book that could handle the dramas of marriage well without disrupting what the book is doing you know from the few issues of it i've read yeah i i, I could see that too but at the same time i understand where DC is coming from in terms of if this is a choice where they're saying we don't want our characters to get married because we went through just went through a whole big program role to make them single. We want to have these status quos maintained for a while. That I understand. And that's what I think it is. If it is actually the other thing, I which I don't think it is. Obviously, I'm not in favor of that. Well, but, yeah, clearly yeah. we at the Review Name podcast are not in favor of bigotry. <laughs> yeah, but like I don't think that that's this is no, i really don't i mean i i, I tend to agree with you in terms of i think dc is, has done a lot to show itself not being bigoted and there are yeah. other gay characters in dc comics i don't think this is a thing of bigotry but i do think this is probably a good time to shift into the other thing about it that makes me angry which is just more of the same in terms of interrupting uh editors interrupting uh, a writer's creative flow and changing their story um editorial control at dc has been a problem virtually throughout the new 52 and i think you were giving me some numbers that were not that surprising to me but are still kind of infuriating about the number of writers who've left their books because dc editors keep changing their stories and keep making them change what they want to do yeah uh i i don't have the exact numbers of the way you just phrased it but so we're about two years into the new 52 right now um if you look at the books that were initially launched uh, as of August of this year, 12 of those books maintained their writers for two years. So say, let's say that it's like roughly 24 issues. So I think that's a very average, healthy running comics. So add those initial 52 series, the rest of those titles, uh, 40 other titles were either canceled or had numerous creative changes. And now a few of those titles I will attribute to um, creators leaving voluntarily. I'll toss up. Um, Action Comics was a voluntary departure. Green Lantern was a voluntary departure. So the, these numbers aren't like completely set in stone. I don't want to like go into all of the numbers right now, but sure. Twelve out of fifty-two titles, twelve writers doing a twenty-four issue run in comics. 
that's that's not really indicative of uh, a level of comfort in job security, I feel like, at DC Comics. I, I, I think it, it it just doesn't seem like an environment I'd be very comfortable working in. But Well, and even even among those, I don't know if, if your numbers reflect this, but you have people like Gail Simone, who was fired from Batwoman or Batgirl, and then because of the controversy over her firing, because she has a lot of fans, she was eventually brought back onto the book. Yeah, I mean, that was one of those things that, you know, you missed a beat. And you know what, this is... I don't think this will go on forever. I think DC is going to figure out what it's doing at some point. Like this, to be honest with you, like this was the story coming out of Marvel, like around 2003, I think um, you had Mark Wade fired from fantastic four. Um, so this, this stuff is not like exclusive just to DC, but it's because it, it's unfortunate that what started off as one of the most exciting dynamic stories coming out of comics. The fact that DC was making this big, bold, huge change that that's not what we're talking about two years later. What we're talking about is the fact that there, like you, you can't really have confidence or any, I think degree of excitement in picking up a new DC title right now, because my, the thought that's always in the back of my mind is how long is this person I love going to be allowed to stay on this book? Right. Or how like, long are they going to put up with DC editorial to stay on the book? Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's cause like, I, I don't really like to pick up shorter story arcs. I, I like to, to really commit to a title for a while. And when I don't know if this, the, like the writer or artist I will be buying the book for will stick around. It, it really makes me think twice before picking up a book. Whereas I don't really have that issue with Marvel or image. Like if I hear that somebody I love is doing a book, I'm just like, okay, done. I'm in. Whereas DC, I'll give it a few months to kind of see that what the climate's going to be. Sure. Well, um, I think we should probably move on uh, and close down the old news roundup right now. But that's what's going on over at DC Comics, for those of you who care about comics but don't read them. Um, and obviously, Kristen, I think you should do a little comics reading because there's a lot of great stuff out there. Um, read image. <laughs> and we, we will. Um, we keep promising to do this, and I think we'll do it at some point. Do a... a another one of our comics only image uh, podcasts on image um, because we've done one for DC and we've done one for Marvel so far. Um, we like to do those occasionally and it'll be a bonus episode for those of you who don't care about comics. So there will still be a regular old podcast that week, but someday in the next few months um, we will probably do an image podcast. So look out for that if you care um, and ignore it if you don't. <laughs> for now, I want to move on and talk uh, with you, Darren about volcano choirs, new album repave. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Volcano Choir is made up of Justin Vernon, the frontman of Bon Iver, and the members of uh, Collections of Colonies of Bees, which is uh, – Darren, do you want to describe a little bit about them for us? Oh, I've never listened to them. <laughs> well, they're, I mean, they're an ambient uh, like post-rock band, as I understand it. I haven't listened to their stuff either. Um, I came to Volcano Choir's uh, debut Unmap because of Justin Vernon, and I came back for Repave, largely because I liked Unmap and I liked Justin Vernon. Um, so, Darren, you, you reviewed go. the album over at Review Be Named, and you can all uh, check out Darren's review at the website, reviewbenamed.com. Um, so why don't we start with you, generally your thoughts on the album, and then we'll sort of bounce back and forth. Sure. Um, so when I first listened to Unmap, my general thought right off the bat was, well, this is very different than um, or when I first listened to Repave. Their first album, Unmap, was very kind of weird, very experimental, ambient. On my review, I say it sounds a little like a cross between Bonnie Bear and Sierra's. Along yeah, with I, some, I can definitely like, see that comparison. Yeah. 
Yeah, because it's, you know, there's some tracks that are just like gentle acoustic guitar notes with Vernon humming in the background. It's not anything really pop sounding or, I don't know. It was very, I hate using the word experimental, but it was, you know? Yeah, it was, I would but, say uh, it was definitely different than what I expected from what I thought at the time when I first listened to it as just the Justin Vernon side project. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially, there was one really annoying song that I mean, Beer in the Morass or something. I don't like it. But as the album as a whole, it was okay, but, you know, it's just something you would have on in the background, I felt. Yeah, I thought it was, it was great studying music. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, you know, as as I'm in law school and all I do is study. I really enjoyed it for that. <laughs> yeah. And when you first turn on uh, Repave, it's totally different in that the songs are, you know, actually songs. They, the chorus lines, Justin is actually singing instead of just humming on most tracks. Um, there's hooks, it's catchy. I mean, the songs kind of have like a very standard structure for the most part. Yeah, I, I think I think you're definitely right about that. I feel like Repave is is more of a conventional record uh, for the group. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, it's very very good as an album, but at the same time, and I mentioned this in my review, it, it sounds like it could have been Bonnie Bear's third album. Yeah, I feel like of, you know, I think there's there's uh, a lushness to the to the music that Colonies of Collections of Bees, uh, Collections of Colonies of Bees rather, bring to the table. Um, and that's not to say that that Boney Vare's backing band uh, isn't good, because uh, I think they're great. But I feel like there's a there's a lushness and there's an, an added layer of of virtuosity that you get on uh, Repave that I don't know if we would have got if this was just another Boney Vare album. Yeah, I mean you do hear the the Volcano Choir's their traits on some of these songs. Um, kind of the irregular guitar parts, like you hear on Keel. Um, the sampling on, uh, I believe it was the Alaskan, the Comrade. The one that ends with um, the poet Charles Bukowski talking about Right, him. yeah. So there is definitely some aspects of, uh, you know, the Volcano Fire's first on repave. And it's not a very conventional it's not as conventional as Bonnie Bear would be but at the same time it's not it's not really out there at all yeah I feel like this is definitely a case of Justin Vernon bringing uh his bandmates in Volcano Choir in a little bit as opposed to them drawing yeah. out like they did on map I feel like uh this this sort of pulls more toward the center between Bonnie Bear and uh their first album on map yeah, and um, with Weed of the Album, uh, Justin Vern, when he had to talk about it, he said, well, you know, this is kind of just, uh, we decided, hey, let's just make a more pop, conventional, radio-friendly album, and it'll be good because it's us doing it. And you I know, th- he didn't actually try to do anything special with it. He just said, let's just make this album. And I think, um, I mean, we've thrown the word conventional around a lot. I wouldn't really, like, compared to Unmap, I would call it conventional. But in general, I wouldn't necessarily call it a quote-unquote conventional album. And I also think I should emphasize that I think it's fantastic. I think it's a really, really good record. Um, So conventional shouldn't mean boring uh, in this conversation, I don't think, because I think it's really good. I've returned to it several times in the few weeks I've been listening to it. Um, And... 
I think there's a lot to offer there for fans of Bon Iver and just for fans of, of Justin Vernon's style of music at all. Yeah, and it's also interesting because um, you don't hear Vernon's falsetto too, too much on the album. Yeah, he tends to sing a lot of the time in his voices. And that's a big difference there, too, because on songs like Acetate and Dance Pack, um, Dave, you really hear like kind of the tones in his voice that you don't get when he sings in his falsetto. What, yeah, I, I think that's right. What do you think drives the decision? I mean, obviously, some melodies play better to falsetto and some melodies play better to his, his normal tones. But what do you think drives that decision? I honestly think it has a little bit to do with the intensity of maybe the lyrics of the music. Because um, on the Bonnie Bear song, Skinny Love, he, he sings falsetto for the most part, but then during the chorus where he like, sounds like he's breaking down a little bit, he things in this normal singing voice. And I think he does it, I think it might be done to convey more sincerity. Yeah, I think I think that's involved. absolutely right. Yeah, go ahead, what were you saying? Well, I was just saying, on those two tracks I named, Acetate and Dance Attack, they're both, I feel, very sincere personal songs for this. Yeah, so, I, I almost feel like he uses the falsetto when he's, when he's hiding a little bit or when he's singing songs about people who are hiding a little bit. And when he's really burying his soul, you hear the, uh, his real voice. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what are some of your favorite things about uh, Repave? Um, I honestly did like how different it was from Unmapped because the thing with Unmapped, like we said before, was background music. It was ambient. There were some songs Okay, I want to skip this. Um, it I feel like it tried a little hard to be out there and to be experimental, and they were probably really high when they made it. <laughs> but this album is just you know a good all around album. It's you know not too pop or like you said conventional. It's not you know it's not a conventional standard bland album at all. But it is it's. It definitely comes out as a unique album in a way because it's, even though I keep saying it sounds like it could be Bon Iver, um, in my review, one thing I named was that if you look at the difference between Bon Iver's first and second albums, they're very different. So I didn't think this was, you know, it would be a stretch to say that this could have been his third. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I mean, if you look at Forever Forever Ago, it's this really spare. Um record that he did him i mean justin vernon did himself in a cabin in the woods and yep. the self-titled follow-up is is much more lush and so when i say that that repave is much more lush than bon Iver, which i think it is um i think that could could actually have been a natural evolution from where the band uh that became a band uh on the second record could go from there onto a third so i can see how you would say this is the third but i feel like um that's sort of underplaying the collection of colonies of bees uh members yeah, it is. You know, I think I think they do bring yeah. something to the table. Do you do you think they d uh, don't, or do you think they don't bring anything that uh, the other members of Bon Iver as a band could have brought? I think they do, and yeah, I think Bon Iver itself is a little more Justin Vernon centric because it was him only on the first album, and then he does have his touring members on his self-titled second album. But this one, yeah, you're right. It does seem a little more like a 
it's, it's not as Justin Vernon centric. It's a little more. This is volcano choir, not just Justin Vernon and some guys. Yeah, I think I, I definitely, I feel like uh, Bon Iver records are both are have both so far been sort of pitched at the idea of. Um, Justin Vernon sort of alone contending with his emotions, uh, especially for Emma, obviously, but also I think to some extent on on uh, the second record. And I don't I don't feel like that's really what Volcano Choir is going for. I think they're I think they're aiming at different ideas. They're sort of they may be in a similar emotional spectrum, but I think the goal is different. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, are there things you you didn't like so much about the album? I know you gave it a very positive review, but I wanted to see. If- <laughs> There were things that were things that you uh, want to discuss in a more negative sense. Um, trying to think what I didn't exactly like about Repave too too much. I think there were a few songs on the album that didn't really capture me too too much. Um, they slowed down a little bit towards the middle of the album. Um, I can't remember the songs offhand. I'd have to look at the review, but. Towards the middle, it slowed down a bit, and um, it just felt a little long at times. So, yeah. Okay, I can I can definitely see that. Um, I don't I don't think that I had uh, those particular problems. Like, I didn't it didn't feel overly long to me because it felt it felt sort of like it it stayed exactly as long as it needed to to get what it was going for across. Um, but I could see that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it could get a little bit repetitive, but that's really my only complaint. And do you do you think that's something that uh, I mean, has is that something that's bothered you on Boney Vare's previous stuff, or is that uh, something you think is unique to Volcano Choir? Uh, Just to the film on Boney Vare's usual stuff, I don't find it repetitive at all. I mean, I know some people think Boney Vare is the most boring, you know, band on the planet because they just can't get into Justin Vernon's voice and you know, if you're not into a dude with an acoustic guitar bearing his soul or the second album. I mean they had the Saturday Night Live sketch where it's like, oh Bonnie Bear sung himself to sleep again, you know? <laughs> but I do really like Bonnie Bear uh, Justin Vernon as Bonnie Bear and that is I guess his main project. Although like you said, Volcano Fire isn't really a sad project either. It's a whole different band. Right. Um, so we should probably start wrapping up the, the segment here and getting into our final segment. Are there final thoughts you wanted to uh, impart on Repay before we move on? Yeah, I just read this now, actually, um, during the podcast. But if you look at the Wikipedia, one of the things is uh, Justin Vernon. He actually really dislikes some people. Like he said, "Oh, I read somewhere that people are thinking Repave sounds like another Bonnie Barrel album." But I'm not going to go out there and say, "No, you don't understand because that's people's opinion." It's just so clear to me that Volcano Fire is such a band, such a new thing that came from absolutely new songs. It's such a Repave. It's slightly annoying, but if I spent any time worrying about it, I'd spend too much time worrying about it. And he said a lot of that stems from the amount of import that pop music placed on lead singers. For some people, that's literally all they listen to, even when you consider a history of the band. So he's basically saying, yeah, you think that by everyone, you know, and I'll admit my reviews themselves, as well as most reviews, tend to be very lead singer-centric. So 
I think that's just an effect of the way we look at music. Yeah, that's actually something we should talk about uh, for a segment at some point. Let's let's definitely return to this idea uh, when we have time to give it its, its due, because I do think we, myself, and I think music criticism and music fandom in general tends to be very lead singer-centric, uh, and I think there are good reasons yeah. that's the case um, and reasons that make sense to me, and I also think there are some that uh, we, we could maybe uh, do away with if we, if we uh, paid a little more attention, so... Next time yeah. uh, you you come around the podcast, let's talk about that for a while. Okay. Um, for now, I do want to kick things over to you, Chris, and let's talk about the series finale of Futurama, which aired this week. Okay. Yeah. Um, to, this week saw an end to I want to call a uh, animation staple, which is Futurama, a show very very deeply beloved by its fans, myself included, um, and. Futurama came back from cancellation in the form first of four direct DVD movies and then finally being completely renewed and picked up by Comedy Central. Um, the recent seasons may not always have been uh, completely up the fans' alleys or even occasionally they would recapture some of that, the magic of the uh, original run of the series, but for the most part was always felt just a little bit lacking in some way, but still uh, the the series finale of Futurama is a big, big deal, uh, especially for those of us who are fans of it. Uh, let me let me just start off by asking, like, uh, do you guys consider yourselves Futurama fans? And if so, to what degree? Darren? I'm more of a casual Futurama fan in that if it's on, I'll watch it, but I didn't see the series finale. I didn't see many of the new seasons. I watched a whole bunch of the older episodes when they originally aired. Um, when it aired on Swim, for example, I watched them and I, you know, I know all the characters, I know the jokes, but for the most part, I haven't seen every episode and it's not really a show that I actively seek out. So I'm kind of a casual fan. Okay. Uh, I would consider myself definitely a Futurama fan, although uh, not a diehard. I, I have not seen every episode of the show. I did not watch it at all during its original run. Um, I caught up with it first starting when it uh, began rerunning on Comedy Central, and then when it was streaming on Netflix, I've caught up with large swaths of it. Um, so I've seen I've seen scattered episodes from throughout the series run. I've seen probably the whole first two seasons. Um, the entire first uh, season that it was on Comedy Central, not the movies, but I think with season six. Uh, yeah. I've seen all of at least the first half of that, and then again, the scattered episodes. But I did... Uh, I usually don't want to watch a series finale until I've seen every episode, but I did make a rare exception so we could talk about it on the podcast because I do think it's a big deal. Um, and I love the show, uh, even as I haven't seen every episode of it. I think um, there are times in its run where I think it was as good as uh, Golden Era Simpsons, which is about as high a compliment as I can pay to any television comedy and especially a TV animated comedy. Absolutely. But I think for the most part, we can all agree that those episodes were definitely in the first four seasons. Yeah, I think um, that's true. I, I, although I would say, like you said, there there were high points in the Comedy Central run. Um, absolutely. I, and it was Future on was something I never discounted. Like I, I kind of switched from watching it live as they aired to I would watch the season once they finally hit Netflix or DVD. But Futurama was still something that was always very near and dear to my heart. So this uh, series finale was it, it was a big one for me. It was just because it's it's closing the chapter on um, 
uh, one of my favorite animated shows of all times and a, a show that for me was just always really it, even even in their weaker episodes for me it was it was comfort food comedy it was like i might not laugh at every episode but i love these characters a lot and i'm always amused by what their plot lines are going to have this week so it, it it was definitely um one of those finales that i knew going into i was really hoping for uh a, a satisfying finale because um i love these characters a lot and i don't think that we are going to see them get a new lease on life after this i think uh three chances is pretty much all you get after that yeah i know it's, matt matt Groening is saying he will try to get it picked up at another network i can't see another network that would pick up futurama it feels like the sort of thing that like a having it have a second life was surprising um but really i had three when you think about it that's true because they got the movies the the tv movies and then the uh picked up for the actual new episodes yeah um that was kind of incredible but i feel like comedy central is maybe the only home for a thing like futurama um so i would be very surprised if it did get a new lease on life and i personally am treating this as the series finale and um honestly as an as an excuse to go back and rewatch the entire series so that i can you know have seen every single episode um I think you're right about one of the things that I love about the show, which can be hysterically funny a lot of the time, um, and especially in its golden era, is that it has a serious heart. Um, it's I, there. A lot of sitcoms have like heartwarming moments thrown in here and there, but I feel like Futurama is one that could. It was the type of show that would be willing to do a really sad episode every once in a while, and and willing to do things that were actually moving. Um, oh yeah, in its storytelling. I, I think some of the best episodes, the most successful episodes of Futurama will break your heart as much as they'll make you laugh. Yeah. Uh, there is definitely a, there was definitely a very um, delicate balance between poignancy and satire that made for the greatest episodes of Futurama. And I would say a much more tenuous balance than pretty much any other sitcom I can think about. Like you, you referenced golden era Simpsons a few minutes ago, and that was a show that definitely had a share of poignancy. But I think, I think what made a great episode of Futurama is very different than what made a great episode of the Simpsons. And That's for absolutely me, true. was the, this idea that like some of them are like very, very depressing when you get down to it. I mean, they always kind of end on an upbeat note, but there's, there's a lot of stuff in Futurama. That's just, it'll rip your heart out here and yeah. there. Um, so it's that there was a surprising there's always a surprising depth to the show and even in the later seasons i think they still were able to achieve that from time to time so i i think that's going into this finale was i mean it, it's it's daunting the what all of the first of all you have to meet fan expectations of the diehards secondly you have to really carefully find that balance between making it funny and finding that poignance that the show has always been really good at finding. And three, this is a show that's already had two, three, maybe even four finales already. What ground is there left to cover after you've had like three soft series finales already, because this is a show that has been snatched back from the brink of death multiple times. Um, so you really had, uh, I mean, I do not envy having to write that episode. In no, no, me sense. either. That's, that's the stuff of my nightmares. But um, that being said, I mean, just my initial thoughts were it's like, I, I, I think they nailed it. Like I, that was pretty much everything I would have wanted from a Futurama series finale. Um, I, I really loved the episode a lot. It really, uh, it really hit you with that special emotional gut punch. And while maybe not being as hilarious as um, the 
the the first series finale, the uh, the um, Devil's Hands are idle playthings. I think is the yeah, name of the episode. That's, that's the yeah. first one, which was um, fantastic. Well, not maybe being quite as funny as that episode. I mean, there were still multiple laugh out loud moments in this episode, and I, I think they absolutely gave me that kind of emotional closure I wanted from the series. Yeah, I, I think, and again, as always, we will spoil in a minute, but for now, we will give no spoilers, and I'll warn you before we spoil the episode, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it. Um, I feel like this was a, it was a really moving episode, uh, in a way that I had I had hoped that the finale would be, because that's something Futurama's done well. Um, and at several, at several moments, I thought that it was going to go um, in various different directions in the way that it was moving, um, and it ended up going in the one that I had hoped for the most. So I think, like, this was, I, it was a funny episode. It was not the funniest by far, um, yeah. uh, but it was a funny episode. It had some cool, one of the things I've always loved about Futurama is the way that it, it is both satirical and heartwarming, but also, like, it's a real science fiction show. Like, it, it's not messing around with its, with it being set in the future. Like, I could see another version of the show that was very lazy uh, with the future jokes or, or good with the future jokes in terms of satire, but lazy in terms of the sci-fi. But this is a show that's never afraid of going into like actual sci-fi concepts and playing around with them and treating them seriously, which I've always appreciated for it. And I think, which I wanted to see in the finale and was happy to see in the finale, there's like, uh, I think Meanwhile Works, that's the name of the episode, uh, Meanwhile Works as uh, a science fiction short story as well. Yeah. And Futurama, yeah, Futurama has always been very good at that. And specifically, time tra- travel um, has been a favorite trope of the show for some time. So I, I, I always, they, they always seem to find new and fun ways to deal with the concept of time travel. And I mean, sometimes they even like disregard like the previous rules they've come up with for time travel. And, that, and that's fine, like because they always do it in a very natural way that kind of, uh, sort of wink at it whenever they need to. And this but, is and this is a show yeah. that has enough of a sense of humor about itself that you're allow you I allow it anyway to just blow whatever rules it wants out of the window to tell whatever story it wants to tell. <laughs> yeah, completely. I'm not gonna really get too ingrained on the continuity of Futurama. <laughs> I do think I do think it takes the sci-fi seriously, but it also like if it wants to take the sci-fi seriously uh, in certain aspects and not in others, it's perfectly willing to do that. Yeah, it's not shackled by it, but it definitely respects it. Uh, and I like that about the show. Um, are there other non-spoiler things you want to say before we dive into the spoilers in the finale? Um, I, I, I didn't. I, I'm remiss to having had watched some of the episodes leading up to this. I watched a few from the beginning of this season. I haven't watched the lead up to this episode. So I'm hoping that from those episodes, we um, got more of a send off for the um, uh, supporting cast. Uh, because Futurama is one of those shows that, like um, The Simpsons before it, has just this amazing stable of hilarious recurring characters who understandably really had to take a backseat in the series finale because, you know, there's important characters to wrap up, but you didn't get, like, a Zap Brannigan moment. You didn't get... Um, well, you got a Zap yeah. Brannigan moment, but not a great Zap Brannigan yeah. moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was something that, I understandably you didn't get from the series finale, but I, I I don't really have that much of a problem with it because you know the priorities. There's only so much time, and there right. was definitely priorities that had to be made. I I completely agree that that a lot of the characters in, and even its core ensemble were underserved, but the focus was where I think it needed to be uh, at the heart of the show, which is Fry and Leela. Yeah. Um. So with that, 
we will now move into territory where we can spoil things. If you have not seen the episode and do not want to be spoiled, either skip ahead or you can come back next week. Thanks for listening. For now, uh, Chris, the gloves are off. Talk about what you will. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this episode involves uh, Fry deciding to propose to Leela while the professor has simultaneously invented a remote control that by pressing a button, you can go back in time 10 seconds. Um which they have some fun with at the beginning of the episode, um, specifically. I, I always like it when they they fuck around with Zoidberg. Like that's, yeah, messing that's, with Zoidberg is one of the yeah. great the show has. That's that's one of those things that I will always laugh at, no matter how many times that joke is used and how many different permutations. I will always laugh at them hating Zoidberg and Zoidberg just wanting to spend time with his best friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's always funny to me. Um, so then you uh, get into a scenario where um, I, I, for me, like the, the high point of hilarity for the episode was, uh, so Fry proposes to Leela and asks her to meet him at the top of the, the vampire state building, um, which is the tallest building in New York. Uh, and when he thinks he is, she isn't going to show up, he decides to jump to his death, but realizes that his watch was just wrong. And when he sees Leela like coming to meet him tries to save himself by hitting the button, but has been falling for so long, he can only delay his death. So it, you have this, I thought, a very funny sequence of Fry continually almost falling to his death and hitting the button to save himself, which escalates into um, different permutations of the situation that get progressively darker as time goes on, which I, I thought for me was like, that was where most of my actual hum the humor I got out of the episode came from. Um, I thought that was a really funny sequence, and I really liked a lot of the things, the way that escalated. <laughs> I loved, I loved that. Uh, I also want to say I loved that this is like this is a finale that has that allows us to both see and uh, see without any consequences. I should say, both Fry and Leela watching their beloved die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is some great character moments and some great comedy, and I love the way that that they combined the two when that sequence did eventually escalate to Fry repeatedly dying when he does, like, he loses the time button, and then Leela keeps repeating Fry's death while trying to figure out a way to uh, avert it and watching him splat again and again and again on the ground. Yeah, which originally is horrific, but after, like, the sixth or seventh time, she's just, like, more curious about how much blood he can hold as a human being. <laughs> right. Uh, and I love the way that, like, that they played that moment both for the pathos and the tragedy of Leela watching him die and yeah. for the comedy of all the different way she was watching him die and then for some sweet moments between the two of them right before he died and like they really ran the hell out of the fact that they could play the 10 seconds over and over again and yeah. did very well i thought that whole sequence encapsulates a lot about what makes for successful futurama um and it it was it, it was it was hilarious it was sad it was moving it was um Weird. adorable at times it was very strange um so yeah it was it was just a really great set piece of the episode and definitely uh on the humor side the high point uh after that you see um this time time because of what they do in this sequence time becomes broken and basically you have a scenario where everything is frozen in time and it's just fry and leela they're the only two that are unaffected by this and they have to kind of try and decide what they're, how they're going to react to the situation where basically they're the only two people in the world now. Um, and what you get to see is them basically deciding to make the best of the situation. They get married to each other and then they proceed to go on the longest honeymoon that there has ever been. Um, there are a few jokes in this sequence, but 
not many. They're kind of few and far between from there on out. What you really have is like a very, I would say like a five to six minute run of just very solid poignancy and just like seeing Fry and Leela grow old together in a world that was frozen in time. And it's, um, it, it, it's very sweet. It's very moving. Uh, and pretty much exactly the culmination you would want for one of my favorite will they or won't they's of television. Um, And yeah, just, just a really very nicely moving sequence. Yeah, I, I, I loved that. And I think that was a high point in terms of another thing Futurama does really well, which is these moving sequences. Um, Exactly. It, it was basically, it basically gave us in one montage, like what Fry and Leela's entire married life would look like. Um, and I thought it was it was really sweet, and it, I mean it was bookended by like their wedding was awesome and adorable, and then that the scene of uh, very very old Fry and Leela finally returning to the Vampire State Building to share the glass of champagne that he originally poured uh, when he was going to propose for her right before time broke. Um, it was just great. It was it was exactly what you would want to see from the culmination of like you said of of a great will they won't they, um, and one that I don't think got much worse when the two of them got together. No, definitely not. Well, and one of my favorite jokes tonight is uh, uh, in this episode, I should say, because it did not air tonight. I do that all yeah. the time on this podcast. Um, <laughs> time is broken on this podcast. Time is always broken on the Review Name podcast. <laughs> so it comes out, like, the podcast always comes out days after we record it. So even if Because listen, time is broken, we broke time. We broke time, and, like, this, this is a joke that we should probably save for a Doctor Who podcast. But, yes, we broke time. Um... But I love the joke about how, like, like I never told her I loved her when Fry thinks Leela has died. And Bender goes, you told her probably 140 times. And he goes, yeah, but she doesn't pay that close attention to me. Yeah, like, that was great. I just feel like their dynamic, even when they were together, didn't really ever shift uh, all that much. So you got sort of the sweetness of them actually liking each other. But you didn't ever lose uh, that sort of antagonistic uh, relationship they had. Yeah, I also another joke I like, which is just like a very quick visual graining gag, was the uh, the list of places that they were gonna have sex like around the world. Uh. Uh, <laughs> like I had to pause and like like read through the list because there were some very funny entries on that. But I think my personal favorite was uh, Mona Lisa. <laughs> I think I think one of them was Ice Cream Factory, and I yeah. Because like <laughs> of course you want to have sex at an ice cream factory if the world is yeah. frozen. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> why not? And then there's ice cream right there afterwards. Yeah, just you know, maybe like in the next bat over. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't eat don't eat ice cream from that. I hope you're not having sex in an ice cream vat. Have sex near an ice cream vat. It will be way more comfortable. Yeah, you know, it, for our more adventurous review to me and podcast listeners. Yeah, for for, for our sexually adventurous podcast listeners, we do advise that you don't have sex in an ice cream vat, but just next to one if you're having sex in an ice cream factory. Um, you can disagree and feel free to, you know, send us all that email uh, and comments you love to do about your own experiences having sex in an ice cream vat. But we will definitely read them on the show if you do that. Oh yeah, I will. I will be happy to read aloud any account of someone having sex in an ice cream vat. <laughs> Even if it's a, even if it's like an hour long, and I have to dedicate an entire episode to reading the account aloud. Yep. <laughs> Such is my dedication to ice cream bat sex. Um, so we should probably wrap up this segment within a few minutes. Uh, what are maybe any other highlights or any other final thoughts in terms of how you think this worked as a finale and what you liked and what you didn't like about it? Um, I, I was I was a little surprised about how much of a backseat Bender took for the finale because the I mean when you look at Futurama the big three are Fry, Leela, and Bender, 
Um, but I, I kind of understand why he might have had to in this scenario. Um, but uh, I, I was a little surprised about how little screen time and inconsequential Bender kind of was to the main proceedings of the episode. But when you get right down to it, I think there really couldn't have been anything else that this episode could have been about except for just the core of Fry and Leela and their relationship and finally getting a wonderful degree of closure to that relationship. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think of the supporting players, I mean, honestly, the supporting players kind of trade off in terms of who's my favorite at any given time. Yeah. Uh, so I can't say like Bender is my favorite always. He is sometimes. Farnsworth is another one I love. Zoidberg is another one I love. I think everyone in the cast gets at least the occasional episode where they are the best thing about the show. Yeah. Um, but I think I couldn't be happier uh, with this having ended up uh, as a Fry and Leela story. And I think the way that the show ends... Again, they really they really have gotten incredibly good considering how many times they've had to do it at ending the show in a way that is like, that's a perfect ending. And also, if it comes back, that could work. Yeah, yeah, they always kind of leave themselves that trapdoor if they need to come back. But honestly, I think this was, I feel, the most satisfying of all the finales that we've gotten for Futurama. And like we said, we've had many. Yeah, I don't I don't hope this is the last episode of Futurama because I love the show and I think even like even yeah. it has had diminished returns. It has continued to be able to give us an episode like this that is really good. Um, but I assume this will be the end. I, I don't foresee a future for the show uh, based on the current situation. And if so, this is the best of the finales in my mind. Uh, and it's a great finale. I think it's a very, very good series finale. Yeah, it, it is a great episode of Futurama. Like, it, it's it's definitely, I think, one of... It, it should be talked about when you're talking about great episodes of Futurama. Yeah, and I mean, if you can say that of a serious finale, the show's doing a pretty good uh, pretty good job. Yeah. So with that, we should probably close down the, uh, the Futurama segment here and award the Rachel Tardif Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. Um, this one is actually a barn burner. So there, there, were, there are two people vying for for the award uh there is one who's gotten a few more votes so we are going to only be giving it to one i know we we broke with that a little bit ago but there is only one winner this week despite the closeness let, let, let me guess it's dc comics right no no it's not dc comics oh, dc comics is is probably years from winning a rachel charter memorial award for best performance of the week uh, but we're pulling for you guys yeah i'd love dc comics to win the award it would make me so happy if they did something worth winning the best performance in the week but it's been a while since they've done something like that and it'll probably be a while again um, the winner of the Rachel Tardif Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week is Hayao Miyazaki. Um, there's a great career that, that Chris, Darren, and all of our listeners who have not explored it should explore and will find joy, I'm sure, in exploring. Um, and a salute to you, sir, for a fantastic career. And I hope there's more great things to come from you, even if they aren't more movies. Um, so I know it's a long flight, but next time you're going to be in the States come by the renamed offices, pick up your trophy and small cash prize, and get a firm handshake from myself and several of the members of the staff here who really love your work. And by that time, maybe Chris and Darren will love it as well. Um, so congratulations, sir. And with that, I have been Jordan. This has been the renamed podcast. And if it keeps bugging us, we'll either kill it or adopt it. <laughs> <laughs>